Now we come again to the book of Deuteronomy this evening. Deuteronomy chapter 21, I was going to cover two different sections separated by another, but I think what I'd rather do is preach two short sermons than one really long sermon, and all of you kids are like, yes, a short sermon, and I'm saying to you, guess what? We go to the chapter where we talk about stoning kids. <laughs> well, actually not kids, adult children of parents. That's right. We don't do that anymore, though. And there's a reason for that. We'll see its connection to the epistle of Titus and the epistle to the Corinthians. What I want us to really look at, though, is more the global principle of how the home is that first school where our children learn moral formation and parents learn to sympathize with the weak and the helpless and the immature, and children learn to respect and revere and obey authority. Does that sound like your home? <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> Not all the time. Not all the time. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. It gets even more contentious. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city and at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This is our son. He's stubborn, rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And then the last little section here. And if a man has committed a crime, punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all the night on that tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land with the Lord, your, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we do ask for extraordinary wisdom this evening, that we might not be those who judge you by feeble sense or to think in any way that we are more holy than you. For you are a God who dwells in inexhaustible light, and you have made yourself known in your word. And you, O Christ, this is your word, fully manifest in the flesh, the one who took our sins upon yourself, and so you are a God who, though holy, is gentle and lowly, and you meet with those who are, of course, already in their sins, accursed, if it were not, for your being cursed on our behalf. And so may we always take these things as the speech of a God who is gracious and forgiving, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. O oh Lord, give us such a perspective, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, this evening what we're doing is we are examining the importance of the covenant 
and the covenant family to the formation of the hearts and souls of our children and parents. Parents, you'll hear young parents say, well, I just wasn't ready to have a child. In the same way you may say, I just wasn't ready to get married. Do you know how God prepares you for marriage and child rearing? He gives you a spouse and he gives you children. You see, we live in this culture where we think that by cohabitating with someone, we are actually trying out for marriage. Now, just looking at the data, cohabitation is no measure of success. I'm not sure how you try out a child exactly. Um, I don't know what the return policy is. They're just so cute for so long, though. You always, you're always out of that return policy window, whatever it may be. You learn by doing it. You learn what it means to be a parent when your kid wakes up at 3 in the morning and they have filled their diaper with this material that will not come off. You know what I'm talking about? And so you think, what's that? You remember that orange stuff that you could have in a shop? Whatever that stuff is called. Maybe I, but you don't want to put that on your baby. How, how many wipes is it? It's messy. It's messy. And so it's not just children that learn from their parents. It's parents that learn from their children. I can't count the number of times where one of my children has done something that is the absolute violation of the very simple, gentle request that I have given them, and I have to go upstairs, and I have to discipline them, and as I'm preparing to discipline them, I'm thinking, I think I did this earlier today. <laughs> Lost my temper. Whatever it may be. Uh, the family is, as my dad would say, it is the safe laboratory where you are all working together to make this beautiful thing. And there are explosions and there is a mess and it is, it's difficult. But it is the primary garden where the cultivation of moral character and righteousness is meant to spring up so that you can then send your children out into the world prepared to be strong men and women of the faith, that men might contend with their enemies in the gates, and so that women might nurture their homes into this godly place of beauty and tenderness and grace. Where do you learn that? You learn it at home. You learn it from your parents. You learn it from your grandparents. You learn it from other godly homes when you're in those homes. The home is the center of all of this. And so sin that affects the home is very serious, even as it gets to the fifth commandment. And here, the sixth commandment, when it comes to drunkenness and gluttony. How are we to pursue holiness in the home? Well, the first point is going to be an argument from the lesser to the greater, from the, the tighter principle to the global principle. And it is this. Holiness at home. And then the second, I'm going to start from a more global perspective and work tighter as it relates to this issue of what do you do with someone that is hanging on a cross or hanging from a tree who has been put to death by means of capital punishment? What are you to do with that body? And what is the relationship of this passage to the previous two passages? This is what I want to look at tonight. So the first point, holiness at home. And the second point, bearing the curse 
of our rebellion. Let's look at this first point, holiness at home. Now, there is always a challenge and also a, a, a joined opportunity for mixed homes. You know what I mean by mixed homes? I mean homes that are made up of two different homes that have come together because of some tragedy. Either it's the death of a spouse or divorce. Half of the marriages in this country end in divorce, which means that there are a good number of homes that are one group of people that have been separated from another and they join to another. We have these Marvel mashers. They're these little toys. And there is an abdomen and a set of legs and arms and a head. And you have all of these pieces and you can put them all together to make like the perfect superhero. This is oftentimes the way many of our families look. So that by the time you get your Christmas list down, it's this web of relationships that you have to get gifts for people. You know what I mean? It's just these massive sort of conjoined, twisting family trees. This is not new stuff for us. What do you, how are you supposed to act? If, if a father or a mother has children in their home that are not theirs by birth, or if you're a wife, and your sister wife has children in your home, what are you to do then? Or what if you're the husband and you love one of your wives, my wives, more than the other? All right, this is actually also current. So in the OPC, we have missionaries that have gone to Uganda. And in Uganda, they continue to practice polygamy. And what happens is this. A man with two or three or four wives gets Saved. He's converted. He repents and he believes the gospel and he is brought into the church. What is he to do with his wives? Well, he can't divorce them. But you know what he cannot do? He cannot be an elder because an elder is a husband of one wife. Now you may say, well, this is strange. And I'm saying, well, it's not that strange. There's many people in America who practice what I would call serial monogamy. Where you just go from one to the next, to the next, to the next. It is, it, is the, it is the weight of the fall and the curse upon our homes. And so in this particular instance, there is a man who has two wives. Now, this was not an Israelite. This was someone who had been saved from a nation and brought into Israel. The scriptures do not endorse polygamy. Genesis 2.24. But the scripture also says you cannot divorce. And so what do you do? Well, here is a situation in which a man loves one of his wives more than the other. These are hard cases. Now let me paint a picture for you. Life is difficult. My father is a civil litigator. And many of the laws that are often argued in court are minute cases that are unique. And so what you do is you take a series of case laws. I remember growing up and going to my dad's law practice. And in one room, there were just shelves, row upon row of legal cases. And what you do when you're preparing to argue a case is you try to find a case that's like the case you're arguing in order to find legal precedent. And in that legal precedent, you're looking for a ruling that may be favorable to your client. 
And so you go to that book, you flip it open, and you look and say, well, in this case, so-and-so versus so-and-so, this was the ruling of the jury or the judge. And you're trying to understand how these things have been argued. This is a case law. This is a case in which a man prefers one child over another because he loves the kid's mom more than the other kid's mom. What are you to do? What are you to do? Now, there is actually a case like this earlier in the Old Testament. Remember Isaac? His wife, Isaac, preferred Esau. Esau was a man's man. He was a hunter. He was a strapping man. Jacob, I don't know much about Jacob. I don't think you could not be a man's man and sort of survive millennia ago, thousands of years ago. You had to know all manner of things. Probably everyone knew how to hunt. But Isaac loved Esau. And he rejected the call of the Lord to give the birthright to Jacob because he preferred Esau. Parents, if I were to push you and I say, who's your favorite? (laughs) The other day I said, Ellie's my favorite. And the kids were like, I said, the youngest is always my favorite. She has the most potential to do exactly what I tell her to. So, you know, really what I'm saying is uh, she just hasn't worn me out yet. That's sort of how it goes. Every parent struggles with interacting with their children, and there is the tendency here in this particular situation to give the greater portion of the inheritance to the son of the wife you love more. Now, why would he do this? Do you think the wife has any role in this at all? Yes. And it's not just because she's beloved, but because both wives are making a case to their husband and he's going to go with the one he loves the most. None of this is good. All of this is wretched, and it is a great argument for monogamy. One wife, one husband, it takes this whole issue away, but there are instances in which people come into the church who are not put together, who did a lot of bad stuff prior to their being brought into the covenant family. Well, how, despite the mistakes they made in the past, how can you bring them into the covenant community and rule righteously while you rule according to the law that God has given? And what God says is this, you have to give the priority to the firstborn son. That's the rule. And what this does is it eliminates the desire to play favorites, or it eliminates the fallout. And so the greater principle is this. First, don't marry more than one woman. Second, love all your children and treat them well and set up an inheritance for all of them. That most greatest, that greatest inheritance is that of a godly legacy. Don't play Favorites, don't let your mixed home be a place where there is mixed affection. And then we get to the second section here, and that is about a rebellious son. Perhaps an even harder situation because it is the parents 
that are bringing the charges. Now, I will make this principle. You lose your child long before you lose your child. You lose your child further back than that moment in which they say, I hate you, mom and dad. I don't want what you want. I am going to go my own way. And at times, it is impossible to point to that time. Where did it go wrong? What happened? Well, maybe you played favorites. <laughs> but that's not the issue here. The issue is this. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them. So they have been faithful in discipline. Now, faithfulness in discipline, young people, does not mean perfection in discipline. And if you ever hold it over your parents' heads that they were not the kinds of parents you wish God gave you, then you are thinking wrongheadedly about your relationship with them and the gift that they are to you and how God can use them to help you. If you ever come to your life in a point in your life, young people, where you said, I wish my dad wasn't my dad or my mom wasn't my mom, what you're really saying is, I wish God wasn't my God because I hate his providence. Think of all the kids whose parents are worse than yours. Think about it. Think of the pagan nations that surrounded Israel who took their little babies and put them in the hands of a molten hot god. So don't complain. Don't think for a moment that you can disobey God's law because the one whom he sent you to teach you the law is imperfect. The way that God deals with this in Israel is in the book of Ezekiel. He says to the generation that complained about their parents, don't say our teeth are on edge because our parents ate sour grapes. Well, what in the world does that mean? It means this. You are blaming your parents for your problem when they're your problems. But he also says to parents what? Raise up a child in the way that they should go, and when they are older, they will not depart. There are these calls given to parents and given to children. Here, in the first part, it's parents. Parents, love your children. Don't play favorites. Love all of them, even if you've created a stinker of a situation in your house. Kids, love and obey. These two laws could be written to the same families. Even if your dad does have a favorite, you don't get to rebel. And ultimately what rebellion is, it is, is, it is evidence of a heart that doesn't just submit to parents, it doesn't submit to God. You learn to submit to God by submitting to your parents. So if there is a kid who is so hell-bent on not listening then the father and the mother are the ones to bring a charge. Now, how bad do you think that home situation has to be for the parents to bring the charge? Pretty bad. There's probably some measure of violence and discord that cannot be resolved after much pain and tears and sorrow. And so what do they do? They bring him or her to the elders of the city at the gate where they live and they adjudicate, and this is what the parents are to say, this our son is stubborn and rebellious, and here is the nature of his rebellion. Here is what it is comprised of. He will not listen or obey. He is a glutton and a drunkard. 
Now, gluttony, there's no word in Scripture called alcoholic. That is a made-up psychological mumbo-jumbo term. Don't, and I would encourage you not to use the word alcoholic. It conveys a sense of helplessness to a particular substance. Yes, I know there are times where you feel helpless when it comes to a particular substance, whether it is food or drink. But this is how God would have us think. It is a lack of self-control that is part of not walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And so what we find is a child who is, well, an older child, like a teenager or older, who has proven himself to be not led or filled by the Spirit of God, but instead he has given himself over to gluttony and drunkardliness. And what that results in is violence in the home. Now, our larger catechism, question 156, yes, or 136, it is a very large catechism. It's 170-something questions. If you want what is perhaps the best summary of the Ten Commandments in written form, go to the Westminster Larger Catechism. And this is what it says is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatever else tends, here it is, to the destruction of the life of any. Now you may say, well, that is tight. Good. I need tight. You know why I need tight? Because the, the sin in me wants loose. Don't tell me what to do. Is the spirit of the natural man. And what a mother and a father are trying to do is convey to their children, no, 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 no. You need your affections corralled. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. This we sing. To be corralled by the law of God for this reason. Obedience brings life. Disobedience brings death. What that child, in essence, has done in his behavior and his rejection of authority has said, bring it on. They deserve death. Now, here's my advice to you when you look at passages and deal with passages such as this, and the secular world goes, I can't believe the Bible says something like that. Just lean in and say, Yes, it does. God takes sin very seriously. And then say this, thanks be to God that you are not a child at this time for this reason. In Titus chapter 2, all the way at the other end of the scriptures, in Titus chapter 2, it's going to take me a minute to find it, because every time I turn, I go too far. Titus chapter 2, verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity. And then uh, earlier in chapter 1, also verse 6. If anyone, this is a qualification for an elder, is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and 
this is a description of the same sin, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, here's the issue. What do we do with children of the covenant in the New Testament who are guilty of debauchery and insubordination? Well, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I said this was going to be a short sermon. I'm, I'm moving it, in my, what is it, my opinion, at breakneck pace. 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, uh, beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. This is a Christian church. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. What is this a description of? We call this church discipline. And it is an act of excommunication. God takes your sin very seriously. And if I were to say to you, death or damnation, which would you choose? If I were to say to you, an early, a, a, a life that ends early... Or a long life of pleasure that ends in hell, what would you choose? Well, I would imagine you would, by nature, say, I want as long and prosperous of a life as possible. I don't care what the end is right now. I'm just going to shut my eyes, put my fingers in my ears, and just move forward in my sin. That is the life that Moses is talking about. They have rejected in wholesale the authority of God, and the parents are going... We've tried everything. And what begins to happen is this sixth commandment violation and a fifth commandment violation begins to affect the whole body. And so Moses says, so you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. So what do we learn? God takes sin seriously. Well, yeah, but he takes sin seriously especially the sins between parents and children, because it's the template for how we are to know and love God and interact with him. This is why marriage is so important, because it is a picture of Christ in the church. Our homes are given to us, these God-given gardens, where moral formation first develops. And when one rejects the authority of parents, they commit the sin, the Bible says, of witchcraft itself. And it's worthy now of excommunication. But what is the solution to all of this? If God does not want these kinds of people in his church, what's the cure for it? And that's the second or the third section here. Bearing, this is the second point, the third section, beginning in verse 22. The second point, bearing the curse of our rebellion. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, then he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land, and the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So, there is a case law purpose for the Old Testament, especially the book of Deuteronomy. But there is also a purpose of the Old Testament to point us to the Christ who has not yet come. Jesus gave us the law. But he also came under the law so that he might fulfill the law, that we might be freed from the curse of the law. 
And this is where I'm arguing from the greater, more ultimate redemptive historical principle to this moment here. This section of scripture is here so that we might only learn that God wishes to keep the land holy, but also the mechanism by which the people of the land will be made holy. There are certain sections of scripture that seem to exist for a special purpose to point us to the nature of our redemption in Christ Jesus. And this is one of those. And it is this. Cursed is everyone by God who hangs upon a tree. Why was Christ crucified? Is that because that was the Roman method? Yes, it was a Roman method. There were other means of excommunication. I mean, execution, sorry. Paul was beheaded. Christ was crucified. You know why? Because the Jews cried out for it. Why crucifixion? Because it was the most brutal way of exposing the nation to the heinous nature of blasphemy. Christ was crucified for taking the name of Christ in vain. Have you thought about that? Because Christ was charged with the vain usage of the name of Yahweh by attributing to himself the name Yahweh, he was crucified. Christ was crucified for taking the name of Christ in vain. For what reason? So that we who take the name of the Lord in vain, and I don't mean just saying a word, you know, when you stub your toe, but our lives, our lives that are accursed because of our sin, our deliverance has been purchased by the one who was cursed on our behalf. This means this. In order for your families to thrive, in order for parents to love their children well and children to obey their parents well, what must be the very heart of the home is the proclamation of the cursed son, Jesus Christ. Christ was put to death so that we might be free. And the reason why Christ's burial was hurried is because of this law. In fact, they stabbed him in the side so that he would die. And that's when the blood and water flowed. And then they took him off the cross, seeing that his life had been given up. And they took him and they buried him very quickly on Friday because the Sabbath was coming. And in fulfillment of this law. But the point that I want us to grasp is this. If we don't want our homes to be a place of the curse, we must point our, each other, children, parents, we must point one another to the one who was cursed for us. You cannot have loving fathers and obedient children without Christ at the center. This is why our culture hates children and children hate the aged. We hate old people and we hate babies. Do you know why? Because we are so full of hatred for one another because we have removed from our social fabric any mention and understanding of a God who takes upon himself our sins and he frees us from the curse of the law. The way in which we keep the land holy, the way in which we are, we are kept in the inheritance of the Lord, 
is that we embrace the one who frees us from the curse of our disobedience to the law. So what then must you do? You must embrace the one who hung upon the tree. You must embrace the one who became the curse for you. Christ is the testimony that God the Father has not forgotten us. But he has shown us love, he has showered us with affection, and he has redeemed us through his only begotten Son. And so, give up your rebellion, trust and obey him. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God.